We're looking for irony. I hope you saw some. Let's back up, though. Crowds showing up. Why are the crowds showing up? It's not a trick question. You, you, you can see why. One, someone has been raised from the dead. Put that on news tonight, and the crowds will show up. That's a crowd-gathering occurrence. So the crowds are showing up because Lazarus, people are going to see him. That guy was dead, and now he's alive. People are, people are amazed at that. So they're going to see him, but that's not the only reason that the crowds show up. We're told here that a large crowd was gathered there. Some translations say a great multitude. Why? Because they were celebrating, verse 12, had come to the feast. John's always talking about feasts and, and the Feast of the Tabernacles, Feast of the Passover. Everything's taking place at these, at these uh, moments in the Jews' history that were very important. And so here we have again a feast, this one being the Feast of the Passover. Now, if you're keeping track, you would discover, if you went back through John, that this is not the first feast of the Passover that's been celebrated or, or noted by John. It's not the second Passover feast that's been noted by John. It's actually the third time that John tells us about Jesus and what happens when he's in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. So, if you're doing your math, you recognize that more than two years has passed and Jesus is now near the end of his life. This is Jesus' final Passover. We're heading in, I told you, this is the second part of John's Gospel. And it will go from chapter 11 all the way to chapter 21. And it's showing us that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Messiah who's returning to heaven to open the way to God for us. That's the second part of John's Gospel. What you will notice is John spends a lot of time on the last few days of Jesus' life. Great multitude. How many people there? Well, attendance in the Passover, was a solemn obligation for every Jew. And King Josiah, the king in the Old Testament, had actually ruled that the Passover could not be celebrated in your local neighborhoods. You had to pack up and go to Jerusalem for the celebration. When that happens, there's a massive influx of people. Jo Josephus was an ancient historian after the, the death of Jesus. He estimates that in AD 64 that there were about 2.7 million Jews in the city of Jerusalem. So we can safely bet that there were probably about 2 million Jews gathered here. And they are hype. Because this Jesus has been healing people and doing these incredible things. In fact, he's just raised someone from the dead. And so they're arriving at this feast, many of them gathering for this big setup, the triumphal entry of Jesus. 
People heard that Jesus was coming. They grabbed palm branches and started waving them. The palm branches is a reference. I've already told you this to, in another message. Reference to a leader, Judas Maccabeus. Judas Maccabeus led a revolt against an invasion. The Seleucids had come into Jerusalem, overtaken Jerusalem, and changed their way of worship and desecrated the temple. Judas Maccabeus, nicknamed the Hammer, led a revolt against them. And eventually, they relinquished the temple, and the celebration of Hanukkah is what is continued to be celebrated even today. Judas Maccabeus' brother, Simon, was even grittier than Judas, and he drove the invaders completely out of Jerusalem. And when he did that, he became a national hero of sorts. And in that parade, think of like the Eagles winning the Super Bowl kind of parade. In that parade, the Jews celebrated with music and they grabbed palm branches and started waving them for their national hero, Simon Maccabeus. So the palm branch became significant as a sign and a symbol of military victory, of triumph. This is important. They're waving the palm branches because they believe their leader is here and he's ready to take over on their behalf. They start singing. Do you see what they sing? So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. That is a quote. It's a quotation of a psalm. Psalm 118. You can go look at Psalm 118. I'll leave it for you to look at later. Hosanna. Translation. Save now. Save now. Save now. People are looking for a Savior. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. People are looking to Jesus for salvation, but they're looking in a nationalistic, military sense. We know there's confusion here. We know there's confusion about Jesus. Jesus is not who they think they are. In other words, there's irony here. Their, their expectation for Jesus is different than the reality of who Jesus really is. See, we make Jesus into the Messiah or Savior we want him to be, and what John wants to do is give us an accurate picture of the real Jesus. And so he wrote this gospel to help us understand who the real Jesus is so that we, when we gather here on Sunday mornings and when we get up in the morning to worship, we're worshiping the real Jesus and not the Jesus of our own making. How do we know there's confusion here? Because there's about two million people who are waving palm branches saying, Hosanna, save now, come in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. That same crowd singing praise to Jesus in just a few days will be saying something else. Crucify him. People are fickle. But there's confusion, isn't there? 
When Jesus doesn't turn out to be exactly who they expect him to be, they turn on him. And we know this else there's confusion because it tells us in verse 16, his disciples didn't understand these things. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to him. We have a, a, a real privilege now. We have the privilege of understanding Jesus for who he really is. Because we have the written word that John and others have left us. Jesus is not who everyone thinks he is. He's better. And John wants us to know the real Jesus. So he portrays Jesus in this section as a king. Jesus is king. What kind of king is Jesus? I want to give you four descriptive categories. First, he's a gentle king. He's a gentle king. And this will be the the, the point that probably takes me the longest, and the other three will go a little quicker, and then we'll end with some application. But first, he's a gentle king. I've tried to help you understand this was a politically charged situation. Have you ever been in a politically charged situation? <laughs> I live in politically charged situations. I saw a great meme the other day someone sent me. Maybe I shouldn't make reference to these things, but I will. It was, I think it was like the O.J. Simpson scene. It was like the white Bronco, the white Ford Bronco, and like 20 police cars going down the highway after him. So that's not the point. The point was someone had taken that meme and relabeled it. In the white Ford Bronco was labeled pastors. And then in the police cars was everybody that was chasing them. Democrats, Republicans, vaccinated, anti-vaccinated, maskers, non-maskers, critical race theorists, non-critical race theorists. Everybody wants a piece of the pastors, and they're getting it too. I'm going to give you Jesus. I'm not going to give you a political party. I'm going to give you Jesus because he's the savior of the world. He's the real king. I didn't expect to say all that. It's not in my notes. But I want you to know there was a nationalistic fever that was spreading through the crowds because they were faced with this nationalistic politi politization of the messianic title. And Jesus, again, takes corrective action, but he does it differently. This time he does it without words. What was expected here? When, a mil when Simon Maccabeus or when your heroes from the Philadelphia Eagles ride in on the ticker parade, what do they come in on? They come in on something impressive. I forgot to give Dana my photos for this week, but I found a picture of George Washington, this famous picture, and he's on this, he's a big man on this huge white horse. And you just get this sense, like, that's the, that's the horse. If, if I only get to pick a horse to ride in on my day, that's the horse I want. Big, white horse, and, and just impressive. And everybody else will be smaller and coming behind me. That's my big day. 
This is what people want from me. Jesus won't come in on a royal steed. Jesus, not only does it say he gets a, a donkey, but it says that he gets a young one. So a small one. Donkeys are already small. So the picture you get is not one of a king riding on a royal steed. It's of a man riding a donkey so small that he probably has to lift his feet up so that they don't drag on the ground. It is unimpressive. Why? Zechariah 9.9 will answer that question for you. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That's a quote of a prophecy from Zechariah 9. You should go back and read Zechariah 9 today for some, just to feed your own soul, because this is a picture of the kind of king that is coming, and he's not what people expect. Irony. Zechariah 9.9, who comes gentle and riding on a donkey. If you read the rest of that, Zechariah 9, you will see who comes to take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and through whom the battle bow will be broken. He's coming, but he's not coming to conquer the way we expect him to. In other words, reality is different than expectation. Jesus is king. He's, he's accepting that he's king. He's just not the kind of king that everybody thinks he is. He's actually a gentle king, which in most cases would seem to be an oxymoron, but not when we describe our king. Aren't you glad that he's gentle with you? Sometimes we want a king that'll be brutal with others that we disagree with, but please be gentle with me. Jesus is a gentle king. Jesus doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, but as far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. Aren't you glad he's a gentle king? Aren't you glad he doesn't treat you as your sins deserve? Aren't you glad that you don't have to stand up here and recite to the entire church all your worst deeds, all your worst thoughts, all your worst actions? because they've been covered by the blood of your gentle King Jesus, who doesn't demand that you clean yourself up. He says, I'll clean you up. He's a gentle king. His kingship is unique. It's not what we would expect. To express it, Jesus has to disappoint all the national as nationalistic aspirations of his fellow Jews. But Jesus is king, and no group of the powers of evil, no groups of powers of evil, not the Sanhedrin, not Caiaphas the high priest, not Annas the high priest, not Pilate, not Rome, not Satan, the prince of the power of this world, is going to stop our gentle King Jesus from ruling and reigning over all. He moves majestically forward, 
dragging his feet on a donkey that looks, too, looks like he's too big to be riding it. He moves in procession to his throne, a throne constructed for him by his enemies, the throne of the cross, where he will once and for all defeat sin and evil and death and all of our enemies. He comes as a gentle king. It's the complete opposite of a military takeover. Now, the kingdom of Jesus will have military and political implications because it has to reflect the righteous and just character of the God who is king over all. So it's not as if politics are unimportant. It's just not most important. As a gentle king, as a a righteous king, Jesus taught us to pray that, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done, that this place would be more conformed, the darkness of this world would be beat back and start to look more like what he's prepared us to look like. But as a gentle king, he'll, upright, he'll uphold the rights of the vulnerable and the oppressed. Jesus' dream is bigger than the dreams of those in this passage. He has a bigger dream than Israelite nationalism. They shout, King of Israel. But Zechariah says, your reign will go to the ends of the earth. Christ doesn't subscribe to this narrow nationalism. The temple and the city will both perish. Circumcision as a sign of entry into the people of God will give way to faith. And anyone, no matter what tribe they're from, no matter what language they speak, no matter what the color of their skin is, no matter their socioeconomic status, No matter where they're from, anyone who puts their trust in Jesus will be saved. One word, and then we'll move on. We must be careful, church. For to embrace a nationalistic vision in our own day, which would... Don't misunderstand me. Listen closely to what I'm saying. We must be careful for a nationalist vision in our own day which would limit our global obligations as Christians. We must be careful of any vision. Every nation must be careful of this. Christians. Christians in every nation must be careful of this. Not every nation. Christians in every nation must be careful of visions that would glorify our national heritage to the exclusion of nations beyond our border. Jesus is the gentle Lamb of God who was killed and slain, who was slain and resurrected, and who will be worshipped forever and ever and ever and ever with people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. 
He's a gentle king. He's a peaceful king. He's a peaceful king. Look at verse 15. Fear not. Not supposed to be fearful. Jesus is the king of peace. Zechariah tells us in Zechariah 9 that he will proclaim peace to the nations. His ways are mercy, gentleness, forgiveness, and to establish his kingdom and realize these goals, gentleness and mercy and forgiveness, is going to be extremely costly. It's going to cost him to produce this in his followers. It means getting on a donkey and riding to your death. The ideals of mercy and gentleness and forgiveness are a human impossibility. If you lock humanity together and ask them to be merciful to one another, to be kind, to be gentle, to be forgiving, it's nothing but a dream apart from the intervention of a God who came to save us. The disciples said these things are impossible. Jesus said, but with God, all things are possible. This is what Jesus came to do. Only a king like Jesus could fix the brokenness of this world. It's going to take, church, it's going to take, it has required the supernatural inbreaking of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus and then the outpouring of the Spirit to bring about peace among the nations. Jesus is a gentle king. He is a peaceful king. He is also a divisive king, a divisive king. Some people choose to welcome him with enthusiasm, though I have already told you, less than it appears in this passage. Not all of these people will be welcoming him enthusiastically in a few days. Some will plot his downfall. The world is this fallen territory where a rival power, the prince of this world, holds sway over the people. And the coming of the king does mean war. It produces conflict. Have you felt the conflict that, that Jesus entering into your life has created? When you, when you submitted your life to Jesus, didn't you feel some conflict taking place? Don't you feel it every day like the pull, like I want to do this, but that wouldn't please Jesus. So I can't do this song constantly. You ever feel that? Paul said it this way. The things that I want to do, I feel like I can't do. But the things that I don't want to do, these are the things I keep on doing. That's a man at war within. Do you feel it? Church, do you feel war within? It, the, the kingdom of God has broken into our hearts and established his reign, but the war goes on. The battle remains. Light pierces darkness. Life confronts death. Jesus comes taking over the rebel kingdoms of our heart. He came. When Jesus came to get me, he didn't ask my permission. So he is a gentle king. He is a peaceful king, but he's a divisive king. And he didn't leave me to myself. By his grace, he snatched me. He didn't ask me. He didn't give me a long debate on the merits of following him. He changed my heart. I would have never followed him if he hadn't awakened me by his grace to who I was apart from him and how much I needed him. 
And then I decided to follow him. But even still, the battle wages. He's still knocking on the doors of parts of my heart. Is he doing that in yours? That's one of the signs that you're an actual real Christian. Is that Jesus is slowly, you're slowly being conformed to the image of Jesus. And he's slowly going into every nook and cranny of your heart. You've tried to lock him out of some places. There are some places in your heart that Jesus ain't allowed. So Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And eventually, he'll take over every part of our hearts so that when you get to heaven, there won't be any part of your heart that you say, no, Jesus, you can't go in there. You'll say, no, Jesus, you get it all. You happy about that? I can't wait for that. Following Jesus means death to self. Many are not drawn to that option. Every morning I try to pray this. Jesus, I pray that you would help me to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you. you got to take sides, though. Jesus is a divisive king. You're either with him or not. Who's your king? He's a universal king. Lastly, I said he's a gentle king. I said he's a peaceful king. I said he's a divisive king. And I said he's a universal king. He is the king whom the Pharisees say the whole world has gone after. They spoke it in ignorance. John ironically expresses it as truth. And he references Zechariah 9.9, who says that his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river Euphrates to the ends of the earth. The world has gone after Jesus. The world has gone after Jesus. Variety of races represented here in this Palm Sunday, pilgrims, the searching of the Greeks that we see in the New Testament. The world has gone after Jesus, evidenced by the multitude at Pentecost, who would become the nucleus of the newborn church. The world has gone after Jesus, evidenced by the impressive spread of the gospel among the Gentile nations through the preaching of this gospel. The world has gone after Jesus. Some would say that more, a third, more than a third of the human race is, is following Jesus, increasing among the nations every hour. That means, though, that there's a lot of people who don't know Jesus. We'll get to that in a second. The world has gone after Jesus, anticipating that coming day when the Lamb of God will be worshipped upon His throne as the one who with His own blood purchased people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. He's a gentle king. He's a peaceful king. He's a divisive king. He's a universal king. What should you do? If you're following Jesus, what should you do with your life? If this is the kind of king he is, what should we do? It says in here that some began to bear witness to Jesus. That's the application. We must bear witness to Jesus. Another word that I want to use, represent. There's a, a UFC fighter that, I've told you guys I like the UFC. It's not for everybody, so I don't know what else to say about that because I want to finish the sermon. But I will say I think contact sports are good for boys. I think it's been helpful for my boys to learn to absorb a hit and to deliver one as well. That's all I'll say. You can come, come get mad at me afterwards. This guy, Nate Diaz is his name. You can look him up. You'll look him up. He's going to curse. He's going to say, he's not a Christian. He doesn't act like a one. 
okay? He's not repping the king. <laughs> He's got another king, money, pride. I pray that he would one day come to know Jesus. But he wears these shirts that I love, and I want to get one, but Amy's always saying, I'm not sure if you should do that because it's Canadian. You, you get it. But it just says represent. And it's like cool cursive font. Black t-shirt, white lettering. I love it. Represent. Why? What's he saying? What does represent mean? To show love for something, a place, or someone. Nate and his brother Nick come from Stockton, California. They grew up in the ghetto. And they love their home. And they love who they are. And they love that neighborhood. And so when he says represent, he's representing Stockton and all the little people of Stockton. How much more should we, if Jesus is our king, be able to wear shirts or better yet, live lives that in some way say represent, rep the king, live for Jesus. You know, at the end of the passage that Jairus concluded with, we had Mary. Mary, let me ask the band to return. We had Mary as an example of someone who represents Jesus. Remember that story? Did you guys hear that? If you didn't, go back to the podcast and listen to it. But she's breaking this really expensive jar of, of oil and then anointing Jesus with it. And do you remember what happened? This is what happens sometimes. If you decide to rep the king, if you decide to represent King Jesus, your actions may be sharply criticized. Do you know who criticized? Do you remember Jairus? I'm sure pointed this out. It wasn't just those who were in the world that criticized. Actually, the disciples criticized too. There's a note of realism here. While Jesus may approve of our actions, sometimes others may not represent. Opposition may arise from the world. Our efforts to represent, to live for Jesus, our Christian work and our ministry may seem to some sheer foolishness and a sheer waste of time. It requires fortitude to rep the king. You with me? What else? One of the most notable qualities of Mary's service was its extravagance. People were bothered that she spent so much money. It was an amazingly generous gift, even though the background would suggest that Mary was family was wealthy. She came from money. Mary, however, gave it all away. She poured it all out for Jesus. What does represent the king mean? It means all out for Jesus. All of you, all of your life, all of your energies, all of your talents, all of your gifts, all in for whom? For the king. Represent. When we think about Jesus, our gentle king, our peaceful king, our divisive king, our universal king, we should be willing to spend our lives for Jesus. We should give it all for Jesus. Jesus merits the richest treasures of who you are. There's a time for giving everything we got for the glory of Jesus. And the time is now, friends, to give ourselves for the glory and the honor for our King Jesus, who's worthy of all of our love, all of our devotion, all of our affection. Amen? And I want to remind us, friends, of the great impact our lives lived for Jesus can make. When Mary 
poured out that oil on Jesus and anointed him for his burial. She was, it was an expression of extravagant devotion, but she wasn't doing it for others. She wasn't doing it for us. She was doing it for Jesus. She was honoring Jesus. To her, it was one small thing. But one gospel writer tells us that wherever the gospel story is told, the story of Mary will be told along with it. Her fame resonating and rippling for millennia. One simple act in her life. I wonder, what are you doing to represent King Jesus that you think is just a small thing that is going to ripple out for generations? affecting kids, grandkids, great-kids. Long after you're gone, the effects of your decisions made to represent Jesus, to live for Jesus, having this ongoing impact. Doesn't that excite you to live for Jesus? A simple act of devotion can become a light to millions in every corner of the earth. Sincere service to Jesus has this great capacity to touch and bless others' lives. Do you want to touch other people's lives? Do you want to be a blessing to other people? Then rep the king. Live for Jesus. So many of you I want you to know that Jesus sees those small acts of devotion to him. And he's going to take it. He has this great capacity to take it and multiply its impact. Some of you have no idea how the the simple sacrifices you have made to live for Jesus, to live for your king, are going to have great impact on kids you'll never meet. On people that you'll never meet. Until somehow in eternity, God helps you to understand that they were the people that your devotion had impact on. What should we do then? If you want to represent, say less, do more. Say less, do more. Say the gospel. But let's be a people who are about living for Jesus, not just talking about it. Say less, do more, represent for the king.